and we want to get them off script as quickly as possible. Right. And one of the one of the best ways to do that, they'll slide the slide deck across to you, <laughs> and you just move it to the side. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. Everyone has to do interviews at some point in their life. Whether you're hiring a senior executive or you're hiring a babysitter, you're just hiring someone to you know, clean your lawn. <laughs> I think it's a skill that we all have to use, but really don't think too much about getting good at. Well, my guest today, John Ewing, is someone who actually does think about it. He is the chief investment officer and co-founder of Ewing Morris, a boutique investment firm here in Toronto. And John's success is very much dependent, as you'll hear, on conducting really effective interviews. He does hundreds a year. And I had him on to talk about what it takes to interview successfully. I think no matter what you do, this is a skill that can benefit you in your life as you seek to inspire. So enjoy my conversation with John Ewing. So my guest on the Inspire podcast today is John Ewing. John, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and so John, you are the co-founder and chief investment officer of Ewing Morris. And Ewing Morris, for those who don't know, uh, is a uh, investment firm. Uh, I know you invest money and do it well for successful Canadian families. And you've been around since when? We started in 2011. And how has it been for you as a business since then? It's been a wonderful experience. We've uh, we've had more success than I think we than we would have imagined, and have built a great team, and it, we're having and so a lot of fun doing it. For those who don't know what an investment management firm does, what is like the soundbite about what you actually do? Right. So we invest in public companies that that we've done deep research on, and that we think there's a great investment opportunity for our, for our clients. And then you sell them later when they're worth more in, the, in an ideal world. Right? That's, that's the idea, yeah. yeah. Hopefully much later after they're worth a lot more. Right. And, and, and how many companies, I mean, if you look today, how many companies would you own? We'd be invested in about 35 or 40 companies. Okay. And how many companies could you own? The, you know, there's hundreds, maybe a thousand that would be in our universe. So choosing, choosing which ones to invest in and choosing when to invest in them, I imagine, is... What determines if you are a total success or a total failure? Yeah, that's right. And this is this is getting to why I wanted to have you on the podcast because I know you are a total success as a firm. You're the chief investment officer. You you not only invest yourself but you manage a team. And I know that the research that you do is a big part of how you choose. Uh, and in particular, one of the things that I've learned from working with you and talking with you is that you interview these companies and their management. Uh, you interview them about each other to learn whether or not you should invest. Is that? Yeah, we probably, as a firm, probably do 300 management interviews a year, maybe wow. more. Wow, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. And so you obviously find it useful. <laughs> Absolutely. I think, I think the way most investment firms conduct management interviews is uh, they'd be better off if they'd never met management at all. Huh. But, uh, and but why is that? Because they go in unprepared, in my observation, go in unprepared, 
and they don't know what they're trying to get out of the meeting in the first place, and so they wind up just sold by management. And so you guys take a different approach. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, you know, we've come really prepared, and there's yeah. there's only you know there's certain information that you can that you can only get from the CEO, and that's what we're trying to get out of the interviews. Well, and this is exactly why I wanted to have you on because I know you've used this kind of unique approach to interviewing. It's paid dividends. You're getting some insights, and I think you know people listening will get a lot of value out of learning about your approach. And you know, most people listening aren't investment professionals, but I think uh, from talking to you about what you do, I think the skills and the approach and what you learn is applicable whether you're investing or you're hiring someone, you're interviewing them, or you're you know, meeting with a competitor. I think there's just a lot to take away there. So let's just start with the first question I want to unpack is why do interviews? I mean, you know, when I think about the world we live in and the amount of information that's at our fingertips, and also kind of the challenge of getting people's time, there's gotta be a big payoff. So let me just put that to you, why interview? You know, if you wanna know a company's profit margins, you go to the financial statements. You don't ask someone, because they're gonna round. You can get the exact number. And so there's certain things that you can only get from, from interviewing management. And the biggest thing by far is just an understanding of how they think and how they make decisions, because that's gonna help you predict the future and how they'll make future decisions. Can't you see that from like, looking at their financials or looking at their track record? Not in the same way because you don't understand the you don't understand the why of okay. decisions. You only you can only see the you can only see the outcome with historical decisions, but you don't understand the why. You would think that people would be reluctant to disclose that, like in interviewing. Uh, is that your experience, or are people quite forthcoming? <laughs> people are usually very scripted with the message that they want to tell, but if you can get people off the script then they can become more forthcoming. And getting people to make choices is a big way to do that because there's no, if I say, which one do you choose? You can't just say, well, choose all of them. You right. say, like, you have to make them choose one. And then usually people answer by thinking out loud. And so you get, you get this window into their brain where uh, you can understand the thinking that comes to the answer instead of just the final product. And by putting them in that situation, you're... You're taking them out of their comfort zone, as you said. You're getting insights into the thought process. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, this. So this is why you interview, right? Because you can you can learn about people. Are there are there other reasons you go do interviews? The again, sometimes you can learn a lot about competitors through through an interview. And so you know, if there's a one best place to find information, if you want to know about a competitor. Or you want to know about a company's weaknesses? Mm-hmm. Don't ask the company. Mm. Ask the competitor. So if you want to know the problems with Loblaws, don't talk to Loblaws. Talk to Sobeys right. or vice versa. Because most people in business are only too happy to tell you about all the weaknesses of their competitors. Often industries are symmetrical, and so you can learn just as much about a company's own weaknesses by by just reframing the question right. to talk about competitors. Another way we'll do that would be, you know, if you want to ask about how hard it is to lose customers, you can ask about, well, last time you won a new account, tell me about all the steps that happened from when you know, the customer signed on the dotted line until you actually had them on board. And they'll usually tell you about how easy it is. Uh, but if you just asked, well, what are the switching costs in your business? They'll usually say, oh, they're very high and it's very difficult right. to switch. <laughs> and so um, if you just kind of reframe questions to, uh, to make the answer you want to hear uh, less obvious, then you can can often get more truthful answers. So it's really fascinating listening to you because what I'm taking away is, you know, these companies spend a huge amount of time trying to influence 
investment professionals like yourself trying to influence the market. And, and yet, if you're willing to take the time and then approach the interview the right way, it's almost like you can push all of that aside and find out who they really are and what they really think. Absolutely. And like one of the neat things, too, that you'll find, especially if you've got a CEO who's new in the role, would be, you know, when the headhunter first called you, why didn't you hang up the phone? Like, what was it that, what was the elevator that piqued your interest? That yeah. piqued your interest, and then you can turn that into, well, what do you think? The, why do you think the board chose you instead right. of the other candidates? And that helps you understand the what the person thinks their own strengths are, and also right. what the board thought the the holes were that needed to be filled, which is often not what you thought it would be. So, so let's talk about how you go into the interview because I'm, I'm just picking up from listening to what you're saying the, that you don't just show up, that there's a lot of work that goes into the planning. So I mean, you need to understand the business, the basics of the business. You need to understand what any like, key issues are that are going on at the time. You need to understand the person's background. And then do you prep specific questions? Like do you do a list of questions that you want to have? Yeah, and so you know, I've got, I usually show up with a, piece of paper on the table with the with the questions and and the order matters because you can sort hmm, of how so you can set people up for um, like you want the the tough controversial question if there is one normally near the end uh, where you you've soften built, them up where you've built some more rapport right. and uh, and that sort of thing sometimes you can set up uh, you can set up gotchas where right. you know, they've answered one thing here knowing that uh well hang on a second you explained you explained this earlier and now i'm confused and will you try so when you say that gotchas when you're pre-planning your questions are you conscious of trying to catch people you got to think of the objective which is just to to get the information that you want right. which at its most gen- most generally is just to understand the thought process better if it's a company we know well there might be some very specific things that uh, that we need to get out of the out of the meeting, yeah, you might get them to give you the sales pitch line, ask a question that you're going to get the rehearsed answer at the beginning, and then you can come back later to uh, to test and, and and probe it from a different angle, and and sometimes the it breaks down then. And you mentioned having those tough questions towards the end. Like, what are some examples? Like, if you're planning an interview this month, what would be the tough kind of questions you'd ask towards the end? You know, we've got there's a company we're looking at right now that's been going through. You know, a lot of challenges in its business. Um, they might need to. You know, they might need to sell the company to get out of it. And so, you're going to try and understand how they're thinking about the situation. And then you might say, you know, there's a risk of one of their biggest customers is up for up for grabs in an RFP this year. And so then you might say near the end, okay, well if you lose this customer, what do you do then? Mm-hmm. Or uh, and sometimes it's even just you know. What would need to be true to sell the business? And then they'll say, because uh, you're taking it into the future instead of the present, and then right. they'll tell you what. So you put them in situations where they can't. So if you said to them, are you planning to sell a business? They said, no, of course not. Right. But you would say, you put them in a situation where they're forced to answer. Right. And thereby you can establish that thought process. Right. When I first started in the business, I used to watch Charlie Rose interviews. Oh. Uh, and I thought he was just miraculous. There was this one really memorable interview for me was with him, Jack Welch, the, the General Electric CEO, and Jack's wife, Susie, 
and they'd gone through, a, there was a controversy about how they had come to the relationship had started because she was working at the, she was the editor of the Harvard Business Review and they'd, they'd written a book together. So they're on this book tour and they'd probably done the same interview on Larry King and 60 Minutes and different things. Charlie Rose was asking them about the, the toughest point in this relationship and he had them both crying on the air and this is Jack Welch's you know Neutron Jack the toughest guy going he's crying his wife's crying it was and just watching how Rose got them into this like this very comfortable place and uh, had them open up in a way that they had never opened up before even though he was like presumably asking the same questions at the same time was uh, was really fascinating. Well, so I think he's just a master. And it speaks to, I'm sure the prep that goes into his interviews is phenomenal, but it also it speaks to, it is a skill and it's something that you can get good at for doing. I mean, I haven't yet had anyone cry on the podcast, so John, <laughs> you can be the first. You can cry. Feel free to, to drop tears. But So, okay, so you've done your prep. Now the interview starts. Right. So let's talk about what you do there because my guess is that when you go in, just as you do 300 plus meetings a year, I know a lot of our clients on the IR side, the investor relations side, they do hundreds of meetings a year. And so they, they on their side are trying to do what you do, which is control the narrative. Mm-hmm. So how do they want the interview to go typically? So, I mean, you don't become a CEO without being a great sales salesman yeah. or salesperson, even if you've uh, never been in a sales role. Because that's I mean, really much every company that's public traded in my experience, the CEO's job is the stock. Right. <laughs> and managing the stock price, managing the narrative, not actually operating the company for the most part. It's definitely an important part of the, uh, you know, if it's if it's become 90% of the job, then it's probably There's not a stock wrong. you want to That's uh, right. There's you want own, but, uh, but it's never 0% right. of the job. And so they've usually come in with, they've got their PowerPoint slide deck that they want to go through. They've got the message that uh, that you've coached them to deliver. Yes, yes. And, uh, <laughs> and we want to get them off script as quickly as possible. Right. And one of the one of the best ways to do that, they'll slide the slide deck across to you, <laughs> and you just move it to the side. <laughs> and, and are they are they shocked when you do this? And or? they're surprised. And some people some people like it, and they you know at the end they'll say that was great. That was a lot more fun than right. the other seven I cookie cutter meetings right. I had today. Um, and some people really struggle with it because they're just trying, they're like, well, if you just look on page four and they really want to come back to the book. And so keeping it, uh, keeping it away uh, and physically moving it away. So you actually will like move it from the, right. Extra, separate them from their slides. And, and do you find generally that the people who are able to go off slides uh, are give you more valuable insights? I think so. And I think the people who are most comfortable with it Maybe it's just bias, or the people we're most likely to like anyway, hmm. because then you can the because usually they're saying, "Geez, I was so sick of giving that speech anyway. Right. I really just wanted Thank to you. talk about the right. business. Thank you. That was you know that was a lot of fun, and I got to you asked me some questions I hadn't thought about before, and I just I enjoyed the the sort of mental uh, gymna- like fencing yeah. and gymnastics of this. And so as you're listening, as you're building this rapport, as you're what are you altering your list of questions? Are you are you in the decision tree of like, well, I'm not going to ask that, like, or or do you just pretty much stick to your script? You've got to keep the flow of the conversation, and so sometimes you need to jump around in the if if the answer to the first question takes you leads perfectly into question number eight, then don't force the conversation back to question two and get to eight. So you need to you need to know your your question list in advance mm-hmm. so that you can be nimble 
and keep the the flow of the conversation because you whenever if you have to stop and read your sheet then you've you've lost so you too have to be able to be off script <laughs> right so the the questions have to be in your mind but can't you can't be too scripted yeah yeah and, and one technique I'd like you to just elaborate a bit more on is this idea of forcing them to make choices because I think that's so many questions are platitudes. Right. So tell me, what, is, what do you mean by this force them to make choices? It depends a little bit on the circumstances, but you might, like, let's say you were talking to, um, you know, a consulting company that serves a variety of industries. You might say, if you could only serve one end market, what would it be? And if you've got, you know, if you've got a retailer, you might say, if you could only sell, like, one product, what would it be? Or if you've got a company that sells through... You know, multiple distribution channels. You might say, if you can only sell through one channel, what would it be? Or if you can only operate in one geography, what would it be? Depends on the right. the nature of the company. And so normally the CEO will pause because they haven't been asked the question before. They know the answer, but they just need to think about it. And then almost always they'll start talk. They'll start thinking out loud. They'll look at the ceiling, and they'll be thinking, but they'll be thinking out loud. And they'll talk through well. Okay, let's see, the profit margins are better here, or, the, or whatever it is, and you'll learn so much about the business. So like a recent example, I was meeting a company called Hanger, which is the biggest clinic operator for prosthetics. So people who've you know, lost a leg need a prosthetic leg. And so I assumed that diabetes patients would be the, the biggest uh, customer type. And it turns out that the complexity and therefore the the price of a device is tied to both the length of it, how many joints it covers, as well as how active your lifestyle is. Uh, because you need a more complicated right. prosthetic if you're still gonna try and run marathons than right. if you're uh, just sedentary. sedentary. And a prosthetic only lasts three to five years before it needs to be replaced. And so a diabetes patient, if they're at the point where they're losing a leg, is probably pretty sedentary by now, and they're usually older, which means, and their health is, is not that good if they're at the point of amputation. And so they're probably only going to need this one and maybe one more prosthetic, and they need a relatively simple device. Whereas if you have a young person in a motorcycle accident who's you know, a Ironman right. participant, they're gonna need the prosthetic every five years for the next 60 years, and they need the high-end one. And so it's a small portion of the number of prosthetics, but it's a big portion of the va- like the customer value of the business, which was completely unexpected. Yeah. So if you could just say, if there was only one condition you could treat, who would it be? And I thought it would be diabetes, and the answer was, was anything but. And I learned a lot about how the business worked very quickly. There, there's this perception, I think, that sometimes company executives lie. <laughs> or tell you things that are disingenuous. What are your thoughts on that? Is that something you've ever experienced? The, it definitely happens, One of the, although I think people flat out lie much less often than, than people think happens. And I took a course years ago run by a retired US Marshal about how to tell when people are lying. And he said it has nothing to do with you know, whether people make eye contact or if they've got sweaty palms or any of this sort of stuff. He said, people say exactly what they mean. And so the one example was you know, yesterday, but if I tell you that yesterday I started to rake the lawn, then you know that I didn't finish because if I had finished, I would have said, 
yesterday I raked the lawn. So something interrupted me and I didn't finish. And so then you know, okay, I can ask a follow-up question there. What happened? And the, you know, another version, the anecdote that they shared was when Bill Clinton was being probed about whether he had uh, smoked marijuana in his, in his youth. And his answer was that I never broke the laws of my country. And it turned out that he'd smoked marijuana when he was uh, a Rhodes Scholar in, in the UK. And so people rarely tell a flat out lie. And if you have this, but it can lead to, if you've got this framework, then you can pick up on follow-up questions to, to go right. deeper, like the, well, what happened? Why didn't you finish the raking the lawn? Right. People gr- actually do gravitate towards telling the truth. But what they do is they try and package the truth in such a way that won't cause an issue. Exactly. Can you think of an example of when that happened in an interview? Where you, where you got packaged truth and then right. you, <laughs> and you saw it? Try looking at the AMIA, which runs the aeroplan business, yes. and try, the, the language that you could see coming out of both Air Canada and Aeroplan as to how things would, uh, how the contract renewal would right. go was, was a lot of this stuff of, uh, you know, the way Air Canada would talk about uh, what their options were and, um, and nobody wanted to say, here's how the contract negotiation's going and it's going badly, but if you, you, if you ask the questions in the right way and listen carefully, then uh, you could see it. Then you can see it. So I imagine for you then, looking for kind of the truth in the packaging is the key. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that stuff is easier to do when you've got a written transcript than right. it is on the fly in uh, in conversation. Okay, so we've talked about what to do in the interview, but let's just end by talking about what not to do. You coach, I imagine, your investment professionals on how to be successful interviewers. What are some of the mistakes that you advise them to be wary of not making? Right, so I think the biggest one is answering the question before it's even out of your mouth. And so just sit with the silence and ask, so ask the question and just let it sit there and let the interviewee answer it. So many times people say, what kind of multiples do you normally pay when you make acquisitions? 10 times, right? Whereas they'll probably just say yes and nod and you've lost the opportunity. Whereas if you just say, what kind of multiples do you pay? Pause and let them answer. And then you can get more information. You can ask follow-up questions, what have you, but you lose the opportunity for insight when you answer the, the question. Yeah, we saw that. I remember uh, over the years doing a lot of witness prep in regulated hearings, and we would advise the witnesses to simply answer and then stop because a lot of the best cross-examiners, they'd say, you know, how, how, how much capital are you going to need in the next five years on this project? And the witness was saying, you know, 500 million. And the crossing would just stop and say nothing. And the person would say, well, you know, it could be a bit more. It could be, you know, if there's a risk factor, and the crossing would just sit there and you basically hand the person right. the rope right. by which they'd hang Absolutely. themselves. Absolutely. But it's, it takes a lot of discipline to sit there and let the other person talk. And there's an ego element involved that I think people are trying to show how much they know by knowing the answer. So just letting the answer sit. Another version of that is to plant the wrong answer uh, to. And so you'll see people, if we use the same framework, say, well, so what do you normally pay for acquisitions? And I might say 16 times, knowing that the real answer might be between 10 and 12. And so if you would say, if I just said, what do you normally pay, 10 to 12? They would say, yeah, 
Um, but if you intentionally get the answer wrong, people hate letting uh, like mistakes or wrong information hang out there, and so they people can't help themselves but huh. but correct wrong information. So if you intentionally put wrong information on the table, they'll almost always correct it. Whereas if you put, so we'll try and. If we're trying to get closer to information, that uh, if you just ask, "What do you pay?" they might say, "Well, we don't tell you." But if you say, "If you say, I thought you normally pay 16 times," then they'll say, "Oh, we don't do that," and then they'll give you a, a real range. So, like, anchoring with yeah. wrong information is uh, is a different version of uh, of that too. And what would be a, a, a final mistake you'd advise and counsel your people not to make? Asking compound questions where you say, you know, you're just asking multiple questions in the same question. People usually answer either the question they want to answer and ignore the others, or more commonly, they just answer the last question in your series because it's the only one they can remember. And then, but then if you want to come back and ask the first question, the it's socially awkward because you know that you've already asked that before and it's like well now you're just badgering the witness right, uh, right. Um, and so breaking the questions up one at a time so you get all of them that's great advice because you know i can tell you having prepped witnesses for oral hearings we would say if you ever get multiple questions just answer the one you like right <laughs> or aggregate them yourself into whatever you want it to be yeah so yeah that that's good advice well well john this um I'm really getting a lot here uh, about interviewing. And, you know, the big points I'm taking away, I think that anyone listening should take away, you know, first is that you can get tremendous insights from an interview that you just can't get from any other source. I mean, we live in an age of information, but the human element provides you with things that are unique. And, and the second thing I'm getting from you is that great interviewing doesn't just happen. It involves real preparation, you know, of having clarity of your purpose, having those questions, that list of questions ready, uh, and having, of course, done your research so that you're credible. And last, I'm getting that how you run the interview matters. You know, especially when you go in with someone who's an experienced interviewee, being able to shape the interview, being able to build rapport, and then take them to that place where they maybe share insights that they hadn't expected. Uh, it, it's an art and a skill that you have to develop and become good at over time. It takes a lot of practice. And yeah. a lot of it came from me, just from asking questions, not getting the answer I was expecting, and then thinking about, well, why didn't that question work? And then how can I ask that question? How can I reframe that question and ask it better the next time? Well, and clear, I know, I know uh, what success you guys have in, in investing in companies. Clearly, it's given you an edge in your research. Yeah, I think it's a big part of our, it's a big part of our process. Yeah, so maybe we'll have some of your, your industry peers listening in to, <laughs> to try to glean some insight. Maybe you'll get interviewed. But. Um, no, thank you for sharing this. I think even for me in my work in interviewing, uh, I'm taking away a lot. And I think anyone who has to get information uh, would really benefit from applying some of these principles uh, in their communication. And, and it's neat having you on because so much of our guest list has been about directive communication, you know, how you persuade, how you tell stories, how you speak with expression. But this is a whole other vein, which is how you really understand people through great interviewing. So I appreciate you sharing it. Perfect. It's been it's been a lot of fun, Bart. And if people want to learn more about Ewing Morris or you know your approach, where should they go? EwingMorris.com. Excellent. All right, and come to or come to one of your great client days. You got it. <laughs> That's good. All right, thanks for your time, John. Perfect. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bart. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with John Ewing. Love the insights on what goes into interviewing successfully and. 
the uh, <laughs> I love that story of the truth around lying. How people you can't. It's not their tells. It's not their eye contact. It's it's uh, are they telling you a uh, more narrow version of the truth? You know, I'm encouraged by that. I guess people really are inherently desiring to tell their truth. Next week uh, on the podcast, we have Kate Lynch, and Kate is a member of the Humphrey Group. I think I've worked with Kate for almost 20 years. She's a hugely accomplished theater performer, director, and professional with deep expertise in the area of voice. And I have her on to talk about why you're probably not using your full vocal potential and what you can do about it. So tune in next time on the Inspire Podcast to unlock the power of your voice.